gracious Father, we thank you for you are truly the foundation on which we build our lives. And Jesus told us that those who hear your word and do it are those who build their house upon a rock. And when the storms of life come and beat against that house, it will not fall because our foundation is you. And so I pray, Father, that you would help all of us to keep that always in mind. Our focus is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. The foundation of every aspect of our lives is Jesus. So, Father, as we seek you in your word this morning, we pray for your guidance, for your wisdom. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher and that we would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thus far in the book of Luke, we have focused on the events surrounding Jesus' birth and immediately following Jesus' birth. And so we, you know, we go all the way back. We have Zacharias in the temple and Gabriel appearing to him and, and Elizabeth, and then Gabriel appears to Mary, and then Mary and Elizabeth hang out, and Mary sings an amazing song of worship, and then Jesus is born, and then last week we looked at Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple, presenting him before God, making the sacrifices for her cleansing, and having Jesus himself circumcised. Today, we're going to look at the only account we have of Jesus' childhood in the Gospels when he attended the Passover in Jerusalem with Mary and Joseph, his mother and adopted father. And just by way of note, because it fascinates me to think about this stuff, um, here we'll see that Jesus is 12 years old when we read verse 42. And this informs our biblical timeline. Uh, we don't know exactly how long Jesus was in Egypt when Mary and Joseph took him and fled from the massacre that Herod committed in Bethlehem. Um, but we know, right, that's all in Matthew chapter 2, history tells us that they were there, well, the Bible tells us and history tells us that they were there in Egypt until Herod died. Now, history by itself, the Bible doesn't really list the date, tells us that Herod the Great died somewhere around 4 AD, and it was after that that Mary and Joseph took Jesus and returned to Nazareth. But we don't know how long after Herod's death, so we can only guess. But at this point, with Jesus being 12 years old, they would have only been back in Israel for less than eight years. Right? If you do the math, that's best case scenario that Herod died roughly four years after Jesus, when Jesus was around four years old. They were gone uh, for a couple of those years, and then after his death, they came back at some point. But, you know, we don't have a calendar. It's not on Google Docs or anything. No, but does anybody really use Google Docs? Wow. So Anyways, I pay money, so I don't have to. <laughs> I much prefer this, but that's just me. Um, 
right? So we don't have that written for us, so all we can do is guess. But at the very least, they would have not been back in Israel for more than eight years by the time Jesus was 12 years old. And it could have been less. It could have been, they may have stayed in Egypt a couple years after Herod died. We're not told. Uh, but all things considered, we get to keep this in mind as we find out that Jesus is 12 years old and they're coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. All right, so let's read God's word and then we'll dive in. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. So we're going to stop there for a moment. Here we see Jesus, along with his mother Mary and adopted father Joseph, attending the feast of the Passover. And here it says every year. Now, my guess is, and this again is just a guess because the Bible doesn't tell us, is that while they were in Egypt, they probably did not come up. At least not all of them. Joseph may have, because it was required of all Jewish males over a certain age to attend all these feasts. So it's possible that Joseph came, but probably not all of them. But it would appear that once they moved back to Nazareth, they all went every year. Now, the law of Moses commanded that all Jewish males had to attend three feasts every year. The three feasts were Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, uh, which you can read about in Deuteronomy 16. And they were faithfully attending all of these feasts, being obedient to the law. When the feast was over, they left. And Jesus remained in Jerusalem, and they didn't know that. So I put a little note in here. If you ever think you're a bad parent, Mary and Joseph lost the Son of God. It took them a whole day to figure it out. I mean, I've never lost any of my kids. There's been a time or two where we took a few minutes to figure out where they were. But I've never lost one of them. And no offense, I love my children, but none of you are the Son of God. Um, you're children of God, of course. Adopted, but that's a little different. We're going to give them a break, though. right? We're going to give them a break because what they would do back then is travel in huge companies. right? Today, if you want to go on a road trip to Denver, which I feel sorry for you if you have to, because it's Denver. Sorry, Denver. Um, but right, you, you hop in your car, maybe a few snacks, you set up your playlist on Spotify, and you drive to Denver. Right? You might stop along the way for gas, but you drive to Denver, and you're there in a few hours. Back then, right, and, and Jerusalem was not as far as Denver is from us, but back then, if they needed to do such a thing, they would travel in large companies. Because... You know, there were unsavory characters floating about the deserts of Israel. And if you went by yourself, chances are you were going to get beaten up and robbed. Or worse. So they would travel in huge companies. Everybody from Nazareth who was going to the Passover, they all went together. 
And so you would have hundreds of people together. And they would all leave at the same time at the end of the feast. So it makes sense, right? Jesus was there that morning. They had breakfast. Everybody got up. They left. They figured he was there. So that's why we're going to give them a break. Because as soon as they noticed, they did go back. Now, something that I think is worth noting for us is that Jesus celebrated the very Jewish feasts that he came to fulfill. And that is so cool to me. If you really want to dive into this, we went through the book of Leviticus, uh, well, it was early last year, and uh, all of that's up on our website. You can go check it out. Um, and we talked about how Jesus fulfilled all the feasts and how he fulfilled all the sacrifices. So it, it was a fun study. At least I thought it was. Um, but he came here, right? He came to the Passover feast. He celebrated the Passover feast when he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, according to John 1.29. Just like the lamb during Passover represented a substitutionary sacrifice for the firstborn of Israel. You can read about that in Exodus 12 and 13. So Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. He is the lamb of God. And he did make provision for the removal of our sin when we place our faith in him. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That word propitiation, it's a fancy word that means substitute. He is the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He took our place. And now when it says there, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, that doesn't mean everybody gets saved. I wish it did, but it doesn't, because not everybody gets saved. What it does mean is that what Jesus did on the cross, his death and resurrection is enough to save everybody. But there will be those who reject his free offer of salvation. Ephesians 5.2 puts it this way. We're told to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So if you've never really studied the feast, I know Leviticus is kind of a hard book to go through, but I do recommend it because it's cool how Jesus did that. Now, if you don't want to go back and listen to all of them, let me know. I'll just email you my notes. And you can, can kind of go through it and then you'll have it. But it's, it's so cool. Verse 46 is where we pick up. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So they found him after three days. Right. So first they lost the Son of God, then they find the Son of God. But it took three days. So I had a lot of fun with my, my good friend, Pastor Ralph, and we were trying to figure out how those, right, so they had a day's journey out, a day's journey back, then did they find him on the third day, or it was after they got in Jerusalem, it was three more days? We don't know. The Bible doesn't actually tell us, 
But what we do know is there are no coincidences in Scripture. For three days, he was gone, and then he was back. Convenient, isn't it? Right? Jesus told us the only sign I'm going to give you, he told the Pharisees, is the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, which, by the way, I love because Jesus tells us that the book of Jonah actually happened. So those who say, oh, no, Jonah's a metaphor, they're wrong because Jesus thought it happened, and I'm pretty sure he's right. Um, so three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Jesus said three days and three nights I'll be in the belly of the earth, speaking of his death and resurrection. And here, three days he was gone, and then he comes back. This isn't an accident. You will never come across anything in Scripture that one of the writers who was inspired by the Holy Spirit put there on accident. That's not how it works. So there's a reason it's there. This is a foreshadowing all the way back when Jesus is 12 years old of his death and resurrection. They found him in the temple, and he was hanging out with the religious leaders. He was listening and asking questions, and I appreciate that. Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. When, when I was teaching, I used to love to tell my students, the only stupid question is the question you don't ask. Because you would have students that would be afraid to ask you a question because they thought it was dumb. They thought their classmates would laugh at them. I'm like, no. The only stupid question is the question you don't ask. And then I was fond of saying, if you need an answer, the best way to get it is to ask a question. And, and, and it's true. To this day, now I tend to ask Google, but to this day, I, I have all kinds of questions, and I don't care. I will admit if I don't know something, and I'm going to ask until I figure it out. And that's what Proverbs tells us, that we should listen to counsel. We should receive instruction. Then it says, all who heard him were astonished at his understanding, understanding, understanding and answers. And I love this word astonished. It means literally that they were out of their wits at Jesus' intellect and his responses. Proverbs 1.5, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will gain wise counsel. That applies to women, too. Just saying. Proverbs isn't sexist. It was just the way they wrote in that culture. Now, what this did to me is I want to know what they were talking about. Right? We're not given that. We're given a few private conversations in Scripture, like Jesus with Nicodemus, Jesus with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. Right? We're given the, the woman at the well. That was a private conversation. We're given some private conversations. But this one, nobody tells us. Right? Luke doesn't tell us. I imagine, and this is just my imagination, that he got this account from talking to Mary later on because we know Luke researched this. And the Holy Spirit said, go talk to Mary. And he went and talked to Mary. And there you go. But I'm just I'm really, really curious. Um, was he correcting them? Right? This is the end of the Feast of the Passover. You guys know why you're celebrating Passover? Really? It's because of me. Right? Probably wasn't arrogant like that. It, yeah, he was never arrogant. but um, Maybe he was asking them questions that would lead them to him. 
You ever thought about that? We call it the Socratic method, but when you ask a person a question, hoping that when they answer it, their answer will make your point for you. So maybe that's what Jesus was doing, sitting down with these. So why do we sacrifice a lamb? Who's took away the sins of Israel, but what about everybody else's sins? What about the sins that aren't related to Passover? Right? Does this lamb have anything to do with the lamb at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? Was he asking those kind of questions? Wasn't the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Throwing that out. I can only imagine what I would do if I was Jesus. It's a good reason I'm not. Um, because I just think he would have been asking questions, this is, again, just conjecture, that would have made them think about the Messiah. Now, whether or not he said it was him, he says it later, but whether or not he, he would have said then that it was him, at least to get them to think about it. I don't know. I'm sure it was interesting. I also think this is a wonderful example for us. As we desire to grow in our faith and our relationship with the Lord, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have deep conversations concerning the Bible, concerning the things of God, right? The Bible reminds us as iron sharpens iron, so uh, what is the man sharpens the countenance of his friend? That's close enough. Um, that's why I love having breakfast with Ralph. He and I, oh, we sharpen, mostly because we don't agree on everything. Now, the things we agree on are non-essential, but it's okay. I love having those conversations with my elders because sometimes we get into that stuff and sometimes we, we explore it and talk about it and think about it as A, as it relates to us and B, as it relates to the church. I love it when people will call me or text me. I got a question. John was on his road trip when they went, they went to New York to go to Israel and praise God they're back safe. Um, he texts me on the road and he goes, me and my friends are having a conversation about church discipline. How many people in their young 20s have conversations about church discipline? So it's awesome. And he goes, but we can't remember where in the Gospels Jesus talked about it. Well, in case you're wondering, it's Matthew 18. So I text that too. He's like, oh, thank you. But I love that. If you ever have a question about the Bible, if there's ever something that you are confused about or you don't understand, or maybe you think, I think this is what it means, ask me. Now, that doesn't mean I know everything. So don't ask me going, oh, Jason certainly has the answer. What I do have is a, is a ginormous library where most likely I'll be able to find the answer. And we can talk about it because I love it. Throwing that out there. Verse 48. Here's where the rubber meets the road in this passage. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. So they find him, and knowing Mary and Joseph, they were good Jewish folks, they would not have interrupted the conversation with the religious teachers in the temple. They wouldn't have done that. So they would have waited until there was a moment where they could speak to Jesus that would not be interrupting the religious leaders he was talking to. 
And at that point, Mary gives him a mild rebuke. How do you rebuke God? Uh, son, we were really worried. Why? Right? So I don't know how that works. The word anxious there, though, is interesting. It means with grief and torment. Yeah. I think if you lose your child, whether or not that child is the incarnate God, um, you freak out a little bit, right? It would cause you grief and turmoil. And Jesus looks back. I'm sorry, Mom. No. We're going to get to that in a moment when we get to verse 51. Why did you look for him? I was just doing what Dad told me to do. And they didn't understand this, and that's okay. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, here's the cool thing. Um, in Greek, father's business is one word. And so it doesn't actually say business in the Greek. That's in our English translations or something like it, depending on your translation, to give us clarity. What Jesus actually said is, I must be about my father. That has a slightly different connotation to it. The word is pater. Not Peter, but pater. Where we get patriarchy. And it speaks about needing to do what his father would be doing if he was there. Well, he was. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all one. And Jesus, being the Logos, according to John chapter 1, is the perfect representation of God. The perfect representation of God to us. And so what he was doing is exactly what the Father would be doing. And as we read through the Gospels, he will say things like this again. He will say things like, I'm only going to say the things that the Father tells me to say. Right? Those that the Father draws to me, those are the ones that I'm going to hang on to. The works that I do are the works that the Father tells me to do. His whole life was being about the Father. I'm going to submit to you that ours should be as well. Our whole life, our primary concern, should be our Father's business. Let me give you a couple verses that will add to that. Luke 9.23 Then he said to them all, we're going to get there in a year. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, I love that verse, and I every time I bring this verse up, I bring this up. I've heard people say, and you probably have too, oh, you know, I just have to deal with that person that I married. Just my cross to bear. No, it's not. It's not your cross to bear. Oh, you know, I've, I've got this, this difficult job, and I really don't like it, but it's just my cross I find that insulting because the cross is so much more than that. Not just an annoyance in your life or even a difficult situation in your life. So we look at what the cross meant to Jesus. It meant complete surrender to the Father and death to self. Sacrifice for other people. That's what the cross means. 
So when he tells us that if we want to come after him, we need to take up our cross daily, that means daily we submit to him. Daily we set aside our will for his will. It means daily we sacrifice for others. Daily. And why does it say daily? Because this does not come naturally to us. Right? Well, I surrendered my life to Jesus. I'm good. No, you're not. I'm glad you surrendered your life to Jesus. But did you do it today? And I think he wants us to remind us. Don't you hate it when a good sentence goes bad? He wants to remind us daily that we have to intentionally give ourselves to him every day. And I'm not saying that if you forget to do that in the morning or you have a bad day that you've lost your salvation. We know that's not how it works. But I'll tell you something. I've discovered that when I surrender to him on a daily basis, man, my day goes better. Even if it's difficult, even if there's trials, even if there's trouble, if that morning I intentionally remind myself by his word that I am his, that he's in control, and that his will what I want in my life, then if that phone call comes that I don't want to take or the, the toilet backs up or whatever, I get rattled by weird things. Um, I do, right? I, I could go have a hospital visit and somebody's dying and I'll go pray for them and we'll, we'll, we'll seek the Lord together and I'll be encouraged. But if my toilet backs up, I lose my mind. It's the craziest thing. I just confess this all to you so you know how imperfect I am. But if we do it intentionally daily, it makes a huge difference in our lives. John 14, 15 to 21. If you love me, keep my commandments. I pray to the Father, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, I say it all the time. We are not obedient to the word of God in order to be saved. Right? We believe the gospel by faith through grace. Right? So that is obedience to the gospel. Don't get me wrong. Paul talks about that. But there is no work we can do. There is no act of service we can carry out that will earn our salvation. It is a free gift of his grace. The Holy Spirit draws us. The gospel is presented to us. And by his grace, we respond and we believe, and we have faith. Now, once that happens, praise God, and I'll throw in there, there's no sin that can keep you from him either. Isn't that good news? That's why it's good news. Love the gospel. Yeah. Man, I lost my place. Where was I going? Yeah, you were all sinners. All going to hell without Jesus. 
There's no good work that can save you. Oh, after we're saved, thank you. That's why I need my church family. I'm, ask my wife. I've had brain fog lately. It's been crazy. Um, once we're saved, once we have been saved by grace through faith, having nothing to do with any of our works, then the Bible tells us to do good works. Not to save ourselves. Not to earn God's favor, but as a demonstration of that faith. I read a Charles Spurgeon quote, and it was after I was done with my notes, it was yesterday, that he said something to the effect that the person who is truly redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ will not have to be told that they should be doing good works. It just comes out of them. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's his work in and through us. And that's what he says here. Well, if you love me, keep my commandments. Simple, right? If you love me, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, by show of hands, how many of us are doing that perfectly every day? <laughs> okay, well, now you've lied in church, you know. <laughs> Notice I didn't even put my hand up to demonstrate because I think the lightning would have come right through the roof. Because none of us do it perfectly. And that's what grace is all about. That's what his grace is all about. Because we're not going to do it perfectly. We are not going to spend every single day, every moment of that day, living in perfect obedience to him. Some days will be better than others. Some days will be worse. If you're anything like me, anyway. The point is, and we've been talking a lot about this in 1 Samuel, the point is not our perfection. We looked at the comparison between David and Saul. Because if you read about their lives in 1 and 2 Samuel, David was a lot worse than Saul. David committed much greater sin. He committed murder. He committed adultery. He was deceptive. He was, at times, a horrible parent. He, he was terrible. And so if you look at what Saul did, yeah, Saul wasn't great, but David was so much worse. At one point in time, and we just talked about this last Wednesday, he was committing murder, thievery, and lying about it. Yet the Bible says David is a man after God's own heart. Because he was perfect? No. But because when he made those mistakes, not if, when he made those mistakes, he accepted the correction of the Lord, returned in repentance. That's the difference. And that's our difference. I, if you love me, keep my commandments. I love you, and I want to keep your commandments. And when I don't, please forgive me. Please teach me. Please help me to do better next time. Now, two more things I'm going to point out, and then we'll finish up. At 12 years old, Jesus knew who he was and why he was here. I want you to consider that for just a moment. I am 46 years old. And even though I know who I am in Christ and I know why he put me here, I still struggle with it at times. I love being a pastor. It is the greatest privilege that I could have ever imagined. It's a gift. And I love it. It's not always easy. And there are some days... When I ask, why? Why did you pick me? You know what I've done. You know who I am. You know what's wrong with me. You know the things that go through my sinful, messed up brain. Why would you pick me? 
and he replies, well, you're the judge now. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's, never, he's, never, he's never said that. Because what I will often say is, I am so unworthy of this. And what he has said to me was, yes, you are. And that's why I chose you. Jesus knew. I could not, I have a hard time at 46 years old. Sometimes, not always. Jesus knew at 12 years old. He knew who he was as the son of God. And he knew why he was here. He knew at 12 years old that in roughly 20 years, he would give his life for the sins of the world. That is so far beyond me. What came to mind is Isaiah 53, which tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I could not imagine because at 12 years old, he probably knew before 12. But at the very least by 12. He spent so much of his life knowing what was coming. When he talks about surrendering to the will of God, he never ran from it. Yes, he prayed in the garden. I'm sh we know that it was difficult. But he never ran from God's will for his life. And I'm so grateful for that because I'm going to heaven instead of hell as a result of it. And so are you. That's good news. Then it says Mary and Joseph had a lack of understanding. Fair enough. Uh, they, it literally says that they could not put together or comprehend what Jesus said to them. And I do think this is a fair response. While they knew so much about who Jesus was, and who he was meant to be at this point, I am sure having a full comprehension of all of that was beyond their grasp. And the reason I can say that is we have the entire word of God. We can study it from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. We have all four Gospels. We can see the beginning from the end. And we don't fully comprehend who Jesus is. right? Our understanding falls short because we're human beings and he is God. So Mary and Joseph couldn't go back and read the Gospel of Matthew or go read the Gospel of John and try to put together what was going on here. They didn't have that. And yes, they had the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit didn't dwell inside of them. That didn't happen until after Jesus' resurrection, fully completed on the day of Pentecost. So again, like we gave them a break for losing him, we're going to give them a break for not understanding. Verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I mentioned this last week, that it's vital for us to know and understand the divinity of Jesus. Purpose of the book of John, by the way. However, we must not forget Jesus' humanity. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. There are some who try to split it up. Well, he was half God and half man. No, he was not, you know, a centaur. Half horse and half person, just in case you were wondering. Um, or a fawn, which is half goat and half man. None of that. 
He was 100% God, never ceased being God. Yes, he set aside certain aspects of his divinity, like being omnipresent. He couldn't be everywhere at once while he was in a physical body. But he never ceased being God. But to be our Savior, we studied this extensively in the book of Hebrews, to be our Savior, he had to become man. There's a fancy word for it. We call it the hypostatic union. It will not be a quiz on that word. But here we're reminded of his humanity. It says that he went with them, right? So they came, he left the temple, went back to Nazareth with them, and was subject to them. The word subject there means obedient. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The idea that Jesus learned obedience through suffering is incredible to me. He is God the Son, yet in his humanity, he learned to be obedient to God the Father through the things he suffered. He did this as a demonstration to us and it began with being obedient to his mother, an adopted father. That was a command in the Old Testament. Right? One of the ten. How much more should we then expect to learn to be obedient to the Father in the same way? I throw that out there. Because there's a lot of Christians, especially in Western culture, that they get this idea, you know what? I'm a Christian. Every day is going to be sunshine and roses. I'm going to ride a unicorn to work. And, and when I get home, right, all my bills are going to be paid. And, and my spouse is always going to be nice to me. We're never going to argue. There's never any, they're never going to annoy me. Well, sorry, I'm always annoying. Um, Right there, uh, and my job is always going to be perfect. And my family, right? I'm the first one. I'm going to share the gospel. My whole family is going to get saved. Life will be perfect. Thank you. Because that's not reality. Jesus learned to be obedient to his Father and ours by what he suffered. I'm going to guess we're going to learn it the same way. Now, most often that suffering will be brought upon ourselves because of our disobedience. That's not how Jesus had to do it. Most often our suffering is self-inflicted. Sometimes it's the enemy, but I'm not the type that says, let's blame everything on the devil. Sometimes it is his fault, and we can blame him. <laughs> but we also have the power to rebuke him in Jesus' name. So, But I'm not going to blame everything because I'll tell you something. Right? I love this quote, everything happens for a reason, and sometimes that reason is because you're stupid and make bad decisions. Right? I reflect that comment. I do that. None of you do. You're all better than me, I know. But I do that. Sometimes I make really bad decisions, and sometimes I then suffer for it, and God steps in and goes, you know, if he'd listened, this wouldn't have happened. It's very sad. But it's true. Mary kept all these things in her heart. She watched and observed these things. She meditated on them and considered them and wondered how they would all play out. And she would find out. And in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature 
and in favor with God and men. The word increase there means to advance or grow. So he advanced and grew in wisdom, which is the application of knowledge. I'm stealing this illustration from Pastor Chuck, but I've always loved it. Knowledge will tell you that the little black and white furry animal in your backyard is a skunk. Knowledge will tell you that. Wisdom tells you not to pick him up. Right? Knowledge, wisdom is the application of knowledge. He grew in stature, which literally means maturity, age, and physical size. He, he grew like everybody else does. And he grew in favor, which is the word charis or the word grace, with God and men. If Jesus needed this, so did he. To an exponentially greater degree. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18 says, You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. So earlier, we talked about surrendering to him. Then we talked about learning to be obedient. And here Peter tells us, if you do not want to fall from your steadfastness, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's close. In our lives, on a daily basis, can we honestly say we are always about our Father's business? That is a loaded question. Can we say this as a church? That's another loaded question. Are we in our lives about what God would be about? Doing the things he would be doing. It should be our goal. It should be our desire. It should be our pursuit constantly. Remember, we do not get saved by our obedience. However, we will demonstrate our relationship with God through Jesus. We will demonstrate, we will show our faith and salvation by obedience. Thankfully, we don't do this on our own. We are given the guidance of God's word. We are empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, as we call ourselves followers of Christ, then we should be denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following him. Now, I'm going to put a little caveat on there because I want to be really careful not to be legalistic. Does denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily mean we can never have fun? I'm going to tell you what, submitting to the will of God is a lot of fun. It's quite an adventure. Does it mean you can't own nice things? Right, I had this conversation with, I think it was John the other day. <laughs> I'm like, I have a $700 watch on here. It's, I didn't pay that much for it. But it's really good because it keeps me in line. <laughs> Helps remind me where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, but it doesn't mean we, we can't have nice things, a nice home or a nice car or way too many expensive pickleball paddles. It doesn't mean that. But what it means is we give all of it to him. We give all of it to him because it's all his anyway. And if he said, you got to sell that guitar or I want you to give that pickleball paddle away or whatever, okay. Because it's yours anyway, I'm going to submit to you. 
Or if he says, yeah, I want you to buy that house because I want you to be able to do this with it. Okay. Or I want you to sell that house because I want you to do something else. And it's not about living a, a life of, of a, a vow of poverty or anything of the sort. It's just everything that's ours is his. Why? Well, because he gave it to us anyway. So three questions to close. Have you turned from your sin and come to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? I am remiss if I don't ask this question every single week. And I always will, even though I know that you're all saved, I think. You better be. If you've been listening to me for any length of time, you better be. But Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the grave. And when we turn from our sin and place our faith in him, he, by his grace, saves us. And if you haven't done that, or if you're listening to this recording on the internet, or if you're watching us on Facebook and you don't know that, Send me an email, leave us a comment, let us know, and we will help you walk into that relationship with him. Now, for the rest of us, is there any area of obedience that you need to step into or an area of disobedience that you need to step away from? I'm sorry. That's a tough question, isn't it? And it was... I say this often. I wrote that down. And the Holy Spirit said, yeah, you first. And he gave me a list. It wasn't a super long list, I'm thankful. But he gave me a list. Number three, how are you intentionally growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in your own life? I think it's awesome that you're here. I love church. I love my church family. I love worshiping with you, fellowshipping with you. I love eating with you because you're all really good cooks. I love this. This is awesome. But this is once or twice a week. If this is what you're relying on for all of your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're in trouble. Right? This is awesome. But it's one or two days a week. I always compare it to eating out. And I love to eat out. Ask my family. If I had the choice, I would eat out at least breakfast every day, if not most meals every day. I love going out to eat. That may be evidence. But, obviously can't afford to do that. So I eat out once a week, maybe twice a week, give or take. But if that was all I ate, right, I would be malnourished. I would be starving to death. Doesn't matter how good that meal was, one meal can't take the place of 21 meals, or 20 meals. Three meals a day, seven days a week. That's what this sermon is. I, by God's grace, by God's grace, prepared a meal for you. I hope it tasted good. Probably didn't. Probably a little bitter there at the end. But, <laughs> see, if this is all the nourishment you get spiritually, throughout the week, you are in so much trouble. Don't want to be mean. Don't, I'm not trying to be judgmental or anything of the sort. I'm just being honest with you. I know what happens if I miss a day. Very rare. But every now and then I miss a day. And it's detrimental. Sunday. What did you miss first? Or five? Don't do it. Be intentional in your relationship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace because none of us are perfect. 
None of us are without error or sin in our lives. None of us get up every day and be perfectly surrendered to you, keeping every commandment you've given us. We, we don't live. And you don't cast us aside. You don't hate us. You're not harsh with us. You love us. And because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. But I know for myself, and probably for just about everybody listening, we all have something that you've asked us to do that we're being hesitant about. For all of us, most likely there's something that you've asked us to stop that we're struggling to stop. And for all of us, I know it is your will that we grow closer and closer to you in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And so I pray, Father, for myself, for my dear brothers and sisters here, that you would grant us wisdom, you would grant us repentance, and that you would give us the power by your Holy Spirit to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow you. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.